Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery, standing in for Kieran Hancock this week and on today's podcast. If we want to avoid climate change disaster, all of us will have to adapt to our lives. That's according to the EU's climate chief on a day when the European Commission launched a sweeping new plan for shrinking Europe's carbon footprint. We'll be asking what it all means. Later, we'll also be looking at how mortgage arrears are affecting older borrowers with Rachel McGovern from Brokers Ireland and Joe Brennan of the Irish Times. But first, I'm joined by Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary and Environment and Science editor Kevin O'Sullivan, who are going to talk me through Fit for 55, which has been billed as a landmark attempt by the EU to reduce carbon emissions. Kevin, this is all hot off the press, but what has the European Commission said and done this afternoon? Well, this all stems, Laura, from the European Green Deal, which was a a commitment to have uh, carbon emissions by 2030 to enable Europe become the first climate neutral uh, continent by 2050. So this required an overhaul of all the directives uh, and legislation in relation to climate and energy. And today that was announced. And not only that, there's an overhaul of the emissions trading scheme in Europe, which has implications for major industry. And and in in effect, that's how carbon is traded. And a lot of the loopholes are going to be removed. There'll be more onus on heavy industry to comply with emissions reductions, which in effect will be capped significantly. So you're talking about major industries in, in the power sector, also cement industry, fertilizer industry, those that are that are obviously very carbon intensive in in how they operate. So this is a kind of a a, a pretty uh, large scale, pretty big scope to this set of legislative proposals that the Commission has come yeah. out with today. So would it be fair to say that it's ambitious? It is. Uh, that it's systemic in the sense that it's going to range right across energy, agriculture and transport so like that's going to affect everyone it's going to affect every business um and like 13 major pieces of legislation are are being unrolled are being rolled out today the final detail on it will take some years to to nail down but the clear trust of decarbonizing europe is there okay naomi you've been talking to the eu's climate chief and um, what has he had to say yeah i spoke to franz timmermans about the ambition of this deal And essentially, the way he pitched it was, it's advantageous for the EU to be a first mover in this transition, which is inevitable and will be more costly if we don't uh, change in advance of being forced to. Um, So there's concern about potential backlash if costs increase for consumers, for example, because some of the tweaks involved um, include um, making sure that the incentives on taxation or such that the it's cheapest to use the cleanest fuel and the dirtiest fuel is the more expensive. And those kind of things that can feed through for higher prices are quite a sensitive issue. There's memories of the Gilets Jaunes protests in France, which started with a hike in the price of diesel. And so in response to that, the pitch is that there's going to be subsidies, there's going to be a fund to help anyone who's socially impacted by the, by the costs of this, and that this will create jobs. It will be something that will stimulate industry in Europe, that Europe has the opportunity here to be a leader in technology like electric cars, and that you know this is um, 
it's a positive transformation and also something that we have to do to try to ward off the very worst effects of climate change, which are becoming more apparent in people's day-to-day lives uh, with extreme weather events and wildfires and so on becoming more common. Would it be accurate to say that, you know, a lot of people support action and indeed urgent action on climate change, Naomi, in, in the kind of the grand scheme of things, but when it comes to perhaps the personal impact um, they're less keen, well, you know, when, when they realise they might have to pay more for heating or more for flights. Are EU leaders anticipating particular political flashpoints? Um, you know, is that is that a strong likelihood now in the years ahead? Every detail of this package is the subject of intense lobbying and uh, intense negotiation. These are proposals from the EU Commission. What will happen next is they have to win the support of member states and also the European Parliament. So there will be very intense negotiations on this going forward. Um, It's right to say, I think, that with policy suggestions like this, the public and the industry reaction is is often, well, can't you ask someone else to do this? You know, can't you make this focus on someone else? But It is true as well that the economics of this are changing by themselves with renewable energy becoming the cheapest choice in many places and becoming cheaper still. And, uh, you know, electric cars kind of gaining momentum as an alternative to um, uh, combustion engines. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because Franz Timmermans is quite bullish, isn't he, on take up of electric cars? I mean, this is really being seen as the end of the age of the internal combustion engine in Europe. Um, you know, there's a timeline here which sees the sale of the type of cars that we've been used to essentially being phased out um, and that process really starting to kick in within the next decade. And this is going to require the building of a massive electric charging network across Europe. Currently, about 70% of all charging points are concentrated in the Netherlands, France and Germany, I think. So it will require a massive building project, which is a public and private initiative. There will be money available through that through various EU programs. And the aim is to have a charging point every 60 kilometers. It's going to cost something in the region of 50 billion euros. So it's a massive undertaking and a massive endeavor. Um, But the argument is that this will create good jobs for people, you know, that if the EU can get on the front foot in this transition, um, which is is coming, it's kicking in all over the world, then, you know, it can really be a leader on this and gain advantages. And he also mentioned, um, Franz Timmermans mentioned that apart from the urgency because of climate change, there's also a more sympathetic international environment the change in administration in the United States have, has made this a lot easier rather than the sort of obstructionism towards climate deals that we saw under the Trump administration. We now have a Biden administration which is thinking more on the same lines. And there are also many international um, countries that are looking at similar ideas, whether it's Canada or uh, South Korea. So he suggested that, you know, this is a good time for the EU to set out, step out in front. And there are mechanisms like taxation of uh, polluting imports that will also create incentives for international manufacturers to follow suit. So Kevin, you've been covering this area for years. I mean, do you really think there's a sense of proper, real, genuine urgency about it now? I think with the coming into office of, of Biden, it really has changed the, the global sort of interaction on, on the climate issue. And he clearly wants greater ambition and he, he knows what the climate science is saying. And it's saying that 
you know, the clock is ticking that we have to have emissions within this time frame, less than nine years, and we have no choice in the matter. So the momentum is building towards the COP26 UN summit in in November in Glasgow, and that's cl- clearly the driving force. And the European Green Deal and all that comes from today rose into that process. So clearly the momentum is building. We're not there yet. Uh, When you look at sort of the pace and the delivery of of climate actions, it's quite poor. And Ireland is quite poor as well, even though Ireland is now among the more ambitious countries in the world. We've committed to reducing our emissions by 51% based on a 2018 baseline by 2030. So that's up there with the real, you know, trailblazers uh, at European level. But we have had very poor delivery. But I think the good side of it is that the Irish public accepts we need to be, to engage on the issue and we need to deliver more. And uh, they're they're prepared to, to 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 live with that and to change their lifestyle. But clearly it's not the responsibility of individuals. It's the responsibility of sectors of particular industries, particularly the fossil fuel industry, to respond accordingly. And I think as Naomi was saying there's a very clear signal today on the future of the automotive industry in particular. And and that stems from this uh, target that the new, new standards on carbon dioxide will have to be introduced from 2030 and also the sale of new uh, of new cars. They'll all, they'll all have to be EVs after 2035. So the, so the writing's on the wall in terms of direction of travel. Just on on um, agricultural emissions, uh, Kevin, because obviously that's a, a particular relevance to to Ireland. Is there a sense that that Europe recognises those particular challenges that Ireland has on agricultural emissions? Not yet. Um, I I think they they today Franz Timmerman made reference to carbon sinks, and Ireland has a lot of potential carbon sinks in terms of our boglands. Um, but I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting up to speed in addressing how to address methane emissions in particular that arise from dairying and, and beef production. But I think it, there there is an opportunity there if we can chart a way forward. And I think it's clear that Europe will help with that process. And the elements of the climate bill clearly set out how agriculture will have to reduce its emissions significantly. It probably won't have to reduce to the same level as other sectors, but it will have to play its part. And I think it's going to be a difficult few years in, in terms of, of transitioning that, that that process for farmers. So they, they will need to be supported in more significant ways. And I think the government are beginning to come around to that realisation, knowing that this is a sector that's going to undergo radical change over the next 20 years. So Naomi referenced um, higher consumer costs uh, there, Kevin. Um, is there a way of kind of protecting, I suppose, lower income or more more vulnerable uh, people from bearing the burden of, of these plans? Is there a way of effect, effectively uh, requiring, you know, heavy industry and, and sectors that produce a lot of emissions um, from absorbing these costs and not passing them on in their entirety to consumers? Yeah, I think you've raised a very good point there, Laura. That's essential. There are clearly fuel poverty uh, cases in, in in and it's widespread in certain parts of the country, and so therefore they those people those communities will need to be supported, and and that's going to be critical to 
getting acceptance of climate action. But we have set out a path in terms of increasing carbon taxes and that a lot of that funding or most of it will go towards people who are affected by, by climate impact and those that are vulnerable in terms of increased costs. But it's the, it's very clear that, that, that costs will increase for the more carbon polluting behaviors. So you, you putting fossil fuels in your car is going to become more expensive. And there'll be all sorts of carbon tax increases that will attempt to push us in a certain direction in terms of making the less polluting behavior be the dominant one. Um, but we've a, a way to go on, on getting that accepted across all sections of society. And it's, a, it's particularly challenging for rural Ireland, for example, where you, you have poor public transport infrastructure. There's a very high car dependency um, for most people living there. And then there's pressures on farming. So that's where a lot of the supports will have to be targeted. So Naomi, um, just finally coming back to you, um, what's the next step here? Because th- these are obviously, at the moment, they're still proposals and they have to be negotiated in Parliament. But how do you see that panning out? Yeah, so now we'll start quite a long process of um, the different EU institutions coming up with their own position on this. So the member state governments will come up with their position. The European Parliament will work on its consensus position as well. And then finally, those three institutions of the Commission, Parliament and the member states will come together to come up with a final package. So there's a lot of scope for change in negotiation as this moves forward. But the overall shape of it is very influential in terms of what finally comes out at the end. There's a lot of contentious points here and there are points which are more sensitive for different member states. For Germany, there's a lot of worry about the impact on the car industry. How well will German manufacturing firms be able to adjust to this new electric vehicle future? Also, is there a risk of higher EU standards actually pushing manufacturing offshore, making it relocate to other parts of the world. Um, the Commission says that their tax on on imports that are made to less high standards coming into the EU will, will co- create an incentive for that not to happen, but there's still concern about it. Other member states like Poland, for example, very, very dependent on coal as their main source of energy. There's a lot of concern about whether they'll have to shoulder a greater burden than other countries and also um, you know, being among the less wealthy member states, will it have more of a heavy impact on them? So each member state has its own different sort of mix of concerns. And what we'll see over the next few months and years is try a work out of all those details to try and figure out a package that everyone is happy with, that has the right amount of subsidies in the right places to make sure that those people, the, the impact of this is not felt unevenly and that it's done in a fair way. So just to finish on, on a word about the sort of time scale, fit for 55, that's, that refers to uh, plan to cut emissions by 55% from 1990 levels by 2030. And 2030, you know, that's only nine years away, really. It's not, not a whole lot of time for this plan to proceed. Absolutely. And then the overall EU ambition is for climate new, carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, and that 55% level was raised as an ambition it was lower than that but it got it got raised so definitely there is a sense that you know some things need to start kicking in now um that has helped been helped somewhat by policies which are quite in tune with this which are already coming into effect the new common agricultural policy for example sets aside quite a lot of money for eco schemes which are the preservation of things like carbon sinks that we referred to earlier 
reforestation, um, uh, the rewetting and preservation of peatlands and meadows, things like that, to store more carbon in the earth to prevent it from going out into the atmosphere. Um, there's also a lot, a massive EU economic sti stimulus program that was launched in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but that is also tied to these green ambitions. So that money is given out for projects that transform the economy in a green direction or in a digital direction. So I think the these different kinds of policies are seen as complementary. And it's th there'll be a couple of years now for the existing policies that have already been brought in to take effect and for people to begin to adjust to those. And then the some of the changes of this new one will really begin to kick in in about 2026. That's the timeline um, with you know, that ambitious target of um, of reducing carbon emissions that much by 20, 2030. Okay, on that optimistic note, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much, Kevin O'Sullivan and Naomi O'Leary. Coming up, mortgage arrears among the over 60s. A decade on from the financial crisis, the over 60s make up a worryingly high percentage of borrowers with long-term arrears on their mortgage. Now the central bank says lenders need to do more to resolve the issue. Has a taboo about being in debt contributed to the problem? I'm joined by Irish Times markets correspondent Joe Brennan and Rachel McGovern, who is Director of Financial Services at Brokers Ireland. So Joe, how many borrowers in this age group are in long-term arrears and why is this a potentially very serious issue? Yeah, maybe if you take a step back, um, if we look back to maybe this time last year or kind of the, the first quarter last year, we saw the uh, pandemic strike and there was a, a real fear that we'd see a massive spike in uh, mortgage arrears like we saw back um, after the, the financial crisis. And in fairness to the banks, we saw them react fairly quickly and introduce about 170,000 payment breaks. And that's both to businesses and to households, probably half that to households. And so far, we haven't seen uh, the spike as of yet appearing in mortgages as a result of, of the COVID-19 crisis. We haven't seen uh, non-performing loans or arrears directly resulting from the, uh, from, from the crisis emerging just yet. And I suppose that's kind of been helped by the fact that you have uh, certain supports from the government, both for, for households and for businesses, which is kind of masking or delaying kind of the inevitable. But if you look as you're looking at this, you, the banks are, and the, certainly the regulator, is looking very closely at the legacy non-performing loans and what we're left with from the last crisis. So the, the big fear is that as arrears start coming through, that it just adds to the, the, the problem that was not dealt with from the last crisis. And if you look at that, you're talking about around 39,000 mortgages or 5.3% of, of owner-occupier loans are, are more than 90 days in arrears. And now three quarters of that are made up of, of individuals that are in long-term arrears. In other words, more than uh, one year in arrears. And of that group, a sizable portion of that and a growing portion of that are people over 60. Uh, 25% of the long-term arrears are in the hands of people who are uh, over 60 years of age. So that's a quarter of people in long-term arrears. And, you know, there's obviously particular kind of demographic challenges with that. Your re repayment capacity as you get older isn't likely necessarily to increase. Is that something that the central bank is especially worried about? 
Absolutely. And, you know, it seems that the longer this goes on, the more people are going to fall into that because you see a large cohort behind them between 50 and 60 years of age that are in, in, in long term arrears as well. So unless the banks and individuals themselves kind of grasp the nettle, you know, at this stage, this is going to become much more of an intractable problem than, than, than ever before. And, and that's the big problem. You have borrowers who are putting their head in the sand in terms of dealing with the crisis they have and the potential that they could end up losing their home at some stage. And you also have banks for all kinds of cultural reasons that may not want to kind of go after this group just because of, 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 of the age profile, but the issue is becoming larger and certainly in context of the overall arrear situation because we are, what, 13 years after the, the, the financial crisis. So before I come to you, Rachel, just to hear from the broker's perspective, Joe, maybe you could sort of give us a snapshot on, on what the central bank now wants lenders to do. Yeah, so the central bank wants lenders to, to go for a more kind of innovative approaches and maybe approaches that they haven't gone after in terms of particularly of this cohort of people who are over 60 years of age and in long-term arrears. There seems to be a lot of reliance on uh, arrears capitalization, which really only adds to the overall size of the bill and particularly as as people move into uh, retirement, they have less money to be able to actually pay that down. Uh, so it doesn't really solve the problem. I mean, certainly looking at a central bank report yesterday, there is no one size fits all for, for arrears in general, and, and certainly for, for, for people over six years of age. You will have some individuals that will still have a decent level of income that can continue to service alone uh, for the foreseeable future. You have others who will see a, a sharp reduction in already potentially low uh, levels of income post-retirement. And again, you have different cohorts, people who have large base of equity built in their homes that haven't been dealing with, uh, haven't been dealing with their, their mortgage. You have maybe the potential there for a, uh, basically a sale and a write-down, uh, basically a downsizing of the home and a potential write-down of the loan there. Which can be an emotive issue, really, can't it? As a lot of people don't want to feel pressurised into selling a home later Absolutely. In life. If you think of people, you know, if you think of that generation, they would, you know, a lot of them would have, you know, lived in areas where they have lived all their lives, they would have brought their children, they would have a, a reputation within the community, and they may or may not be kind of putting their head in the sand when it comes to dealing with this uh, large debt over, or, or over their heads. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, but it does mean at some stage they're going to have to deal with it and the banks themselves are going to have to face up to actually coming together with these borrowers and, and coming to some sort of solution for them. So, Rachel, what was your initial reaction to what the central bank said this week? Did elements of it surprise you? Yes, I suppose so. Just, um, I suppose, particularly around uh, some comments that were made on the standard financial statement, um, you know, that consumers were finding it uh, hard to complete found it was very bizarre, to say the least, after 10 years of using this statement, especially after coming through the last 14 months where people have been using it in relation to challenges faced by them during the pandemic. And that now, um, you know, that this is a realisation that, that has happened just lately. Um, you know, we welcome the review um, and we definitely think that that form needs to be reviewed. Um, but, you know, it may have came too late for, for those who have been affected over the last 10 years um, in relation to uh, the downturn and the recession. I mean, I suppose the cohort that Joe was speaking about, you know, predominantly they may have been in their mid-30s to mid-40s kind of back in the boom, you know, and purchased properties where they were at quite at a peak 
Um, and that's where they're finding themselves in a very difficult situation now where there may be in properties that are in negative equity. Um, but do, do some of the reports is interesting re- really around the, uh, the long term uh, arrears, um, like over um, 50, uh, 57.8%, I think, is um, of those who are in long term arrears are actually going to be able to pay 50% of the debt that they owe. Um, so we believe that, you know, that it's time to focus on them and, and try and address that issue. And, um, you know, these are people that are absolutely trying to to repay um, and, you know, trying to to come to some kind of arrangement there um, and that they need to be to be assisted in in them. Um, in being able to to kind of leave this debt behind them and it's not hanging over their heads for long term. So you've been critical of some of the ways that lenders have, you know, you know, favoured uh, restructuring loans in the past, which is, you know, specifically the rolling up of arrears. So wh- why is that such a such a problem? Well, even interest only can can be um, a difficult conundrum for people and rolling up of arrears, because at the end of the day, how are these people going to pay for for the um, you know, the lump sum at the end of the process. Um, like I think 17% of people can't actually pay their, their mortgage at all um, in long-term arrears. So those people do not have the income uh, to pay their, their mortgage arrears as it is, let alone pay a lump sum at the end of the term. So it just doesn't make sense for us that, you know, that this has been pushed down the can. It, plus it's it's over people's heads to the long term it's a very stressful situation and it's not going away or being dealt for them. Um, and I think a lot need, more needs to be done about promoting um, the insolvency service, about promoting other routes for people and also people who are in already in structured um, uh, arrears where they are repaying um, their mortgage, but actually they're in a different situation than they were in when this was actually negotiated. You know, it, they can go back again and look at trying to renegotiate um their solution um, because, you know, they may be able to repay more than they were five years ago when they were when they were actually negotiating um, the terms of their repayment. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be done in this area um, and people need to be a bit more proactive about it. And I'm talking about the lenders um, and then consumers need to be encouraged more. There is a phenomenon, of course, where some borrowers don't cooperate with lenders, which, you know, does put the tr- lenders in a tricky position. Is that taboo about debt? Is that the root cause of that? I would think so. I mean, you could look at the figures from um, the insolvency service um, over the last year in 2020, like it was, I think it was 1,400 odd um, that availed of a PIA. And, um, you know, it, it's really important, I think, that um, that. Uh, people are encouraged to go down this route to speak to a professional in this area and to get clear advice on their options because you know a lot of people are scared and stressed they're very anxious they're dealing with a big institution um, and they're on their own and, and they may not be financially savvy um, and you know they need assistance they need help and MABS are, is there also um, you know so it, it's important people are really encouraged to to be proactive and try and deal with the situation, even where, as I said, they may have already gone through this and negotiate some kind of repayment. Their situation may have changed and they may be able to do more to alleviate stress later on down the line. Um, like maybe someone is on interest only, but actually now can repay some of the capital of their mortgage. You know, maybe it's time to go back and to talk to the lender about that because it would put them in a better position 
when they're finished their mortgage and they won't have as big a, a lump sum to repay. So Joe, um, I, I see you reporting that more than half of the long-term arrears cases, I think this is just in the pre-pandemic cases, are no longer owned by the mainstream banks. Does that influence how the central bank deals with this and how borrowers approach it? So... Uh, Loans in general, so you have the service providers who would um, service the loans on behalf of the maybe some of the overseas firms that would have bought distressed loans in the past and also just straightforward non-bank lenders that would be in that group. So but, but 55% is in, is in that space, but they are all regulated by the central bank. They all must adhere to the uh, Consumer Protection Code and also to the, the, the mortgage arrears uh, solution process as well. I suppose there were there's greater potential among the the so-called um, vulture funds or the overseas funds to do things that ordinary banks may not do in terms of resolving um, uh, trickier cases for the simple reason that it doesn't lead to the kind of whole moral hazard issue that a bank would face in the event of um, with its existing customers and future customers as well. The other thing about the data set from yesterday is that it says that about half of the uh, long-term arrears cases um, are made up of people who are actually non-cooperating. But it doesn't break that down. It probably needs a bit more work to, to, to work out to what extent you know, have some of these borrowers tried to cooperate in the past and maybe come across an unfriendly or an unwilling ear in the bank itself or the lender itself to deal with the issue? I think maybe more work needs to be done in terms of trying to work out, you know, what this non-cooperation kind of group is actually made up of. And Rachel, just just finally to come back to you, um, I mean, this is a whole subject maybe perhaps of, a, of another podcast. We could, we could fill it with this topic, but are high interest rates you know, exacerbating the problem for many borrowers. Yeah, I, I mean, there was an issue with, with high interest rates. Um, I suppose they are, uh, they are coming down. Um, on it, It's, it's um, I suppose, looking to the horizon, um, you know, there is a possibility that interest rates might come up over over the next few years. And I think people are, are watching kind of that space at the moment. Um, but I, I think we're getting there. Um, they have come down significantly. There's been a couple of new players in the market that have introduced, such as Finance Ireland um, and Avant, who have introduced long-term fixed rates. Um, that's quite a positive step, um, especially looking at our European counterparts, where that's, those rates have been available for many years now. Um, so I, I think we're going in the right direction. They are coming down, but we're still we're still above the European average. Um, and I suppose the reason being uh, cited for that is the fact that, that uh, Irish banks have three times more capital requirements uh, than the average um, bank in Europe. Um, however, that is because of the financial crisis and, and what happened here in Ireland um, during the crash. And um, it's important to remember that the arrears was part of that and that we need to deal with that issue um, before we can actually move on from this. Okay. well, on that expensive note, thank you very much, Rachel and Joe. That's it for this week's Inside Business. My thanks again to Kevin O'Sullivan and Naomi O'Leary, Joe Brennan and Rachel McGovern. You can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. We'll be back next Wednesday. Thanks for listening.